This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 98. Thank you so much for listening and happy Halloween out there, you yeah. crazy cats and kittens. <laughs> uh, Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. What? No, ma'am. That's right. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out. Because why? Because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-934-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website plus check it out for some different ways you can support the show and become a fruit loops patron yeah so who are we talking about today Beth? today we're talking about elifasi masami who between 1953 and 1955 hacked 15 people to death Ooh, in the valley maria <laughs> In the valleys of KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa, he said he was driven by an evil being known as the Tokoloshi. Mm, But before we get into it, how you doing? I'm okay. Uh, It snowed in North Dakota where my daughter and my grandson live. And I guess my grandson was super excited. Um, They. Yeah, they went outside. My daughter took pictures of him in the snow, and they're super cute. Oh, I bet. <laughs> in one of the pictures, he has just the cutest face, and it made me melt. <laughs> Pretty much made my day, so, yeah. Oh, I can hear it in your voice. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. What a beautiful, like, uh, thought. Yeah. Um, thank yeah. you. Uh, well, I'm glad that was all well and good. Um, yeah, how you doing? I am doing great. Uh, we had an eventful past 24 hours. Uh, my daughter lost her first tooth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had to try to be stealthy and steal the tooth away while slipping the money in. Right. So and- it's tricky. Ooh, so tricky. Uh, it took me three tries. And that girl must listen to our show because she had her little head on a swivel and caught me more than once. Oh and this, my gosh. Yeah. And this morning she was like, um, you know, mommy came in my room. I was wondering, you know, what was behind your back? Why were you in my room? Who printed the letter signed by the tooth fairy? (laughs) And finally, I said, you listen here, little girl. Okay. If you do not believe, then you will not receive. Try to call (laughs) me the tooth fairy again. And then she dropped it. So we're good now. That is so cute. Uh, So, uh, yeah, so we're good. Well, let's get into some listener letters. Hello, angels. Hello. They're looking particularly beautiful today. Are they indeed? Well, what's in that bag, Beth? What you got in that bag? We got a really interesting email from 
Dr. Gwyneth. I salivated over this one. Yeah, this is a good one. And uh, (laughs) she said, I really enjoy Fruit Loops, both the cases and Culture Corner. Mm. I thought I would mention something that maybe you could bring up in your show Mm. about how Fruit Loops subscribers could help out making forensics less biased. Hell yeah. Yeah. When forensic anthropologists find skeletal remains, they try to estimate age, sex, and something about ancestry which is problematic i know Mm -hmm. they do this from models that are created from known individuals in skeletal collections the largest of these modern skeletal collections are associated with decompositional research facilities aka body farms oh i know all about it yeah me too (laughs) (laughs) these facilities are where individuals can will their bodies to be studied after death to help determine time since death after the individuals have decomposed their skeletal remains are accessioned into the skeletal collections where they can be used for many many future studies to discover better measurements for narrowing down the characteristics of someone from their bones Mm. people will provide information about their birthplace where they've lived as well as other information sex age height weight self-identified ancestry this is invaluable for developing better models for identification Oh, yeah. The issue is that these known skeletal collections are overwhelmingly white and older. Shocking. Yeah. (laughs) This means that the models are developed with very little representation from BIPOC. Mm. Obviously, this is a really sensitive topic as anthropologists have an absolutely dreadful history around race and ancestry, particularly of First Peoples. Mm. And the treatment of human remains is very culturally sensitive. Mm -hmm. However, if any BIPOC individuals felt comfortable considering donating their bodies after death, it would be a huge help to making these techniques less biased Mm. and potentially helping identify BIPOC murder victims in the future. I suspect very few people think about this. I know I didn't. (laughs) Uh, Consider yourself a lone wolf. (laughs) (laughs) You thought about it before? I have, um, because I've been to a cadaver lab. Every single body in there was white. All the organs I held in my hand were were white. White people. Um, But they discouraged um, people from donating their bodies to science. But shout out to our pod play cousins over at Wild Black. They interviewed two black women who um, are cancer survivors. And Hmm. they're both donating their bodies to science. And it's something I looked into recently. And I'm all about it. Sorry wow. to interrupt. Good you? Oh, no, it's a, it's OK. I, I find that fascinating. Hell yeah. And uh, Gwyneth goes on to say that uh, even if a couple of your listeners were willing, it would actually substantially increase the number of known BIPOC individuals in many of these collections. Thanks for considering discussing this on the show. It keeps me going through some long hours processing samples. And thank you, Gwyneth. Thanks for the suggestion. I'm very happy to read this. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it's a great idea. Hip hop air horns. Yeah. um, I, uh, well, I mean, it makes sense, right? We all know this on a visceral level um, that this uh, happens. And so I, at first I was going to be cremated and let my, family smoke me in a joint or put my ashes in a tattoo but then oh i <laughs> recently decided that i'm going to donate my body to science so good for you right in the name of yeah. representation matters y'all yeah uh, so that was a lovely letter thank you Gwyneth. yeah uh well uh we got a lovely igdm from veronica And uh, they said, y'all are seriously the bomb. My fiance (laughs) loves your intro music, says it sounds like blood dripping on a piano. (laughs) Oh, I I love that. Yeah. (laughs) You're, you know what time it is. Thank you, Veronica. (laughs) And (laughs) we got a lovely email from Jennifer who said, hip hop air horns times 12 million to you all. Wow. (laughs) Huh? See, mom? 
<laughs> 12 million is how many voters have cast ballots on the day I heard you bring a message about voting on the podcast I heard on October 15th in wow. Ohio. I have voted. Yeah, I have voted in person at the Board of Elections in the second most populous county in the state. Shout out to you. Yeah, uh, I did not take it did not take me as long as fellow Americans in Georgia or Texas, but hip hop air horns. She called it. I'm doing it. Uh, lots of them. And as loud as the tornado sirens to every American voting in October through November 3rd. Yeah. Amen. I am completely on edge each day that I wake and when I am going to sleep. Me too. Yeah. Uh, let's get this done and may our voices give a loud and decisive message to those with political power that we are on the Fruit Loops future Ooh, and not going backward anymore. Amen? Yeah. Ooh. Thanks, Jennifer. That is a word. And yeah, I just I just love it. My spirit is full. My cup runneth <laughs> over. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Yeah, uh, thanks. you. So now we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. Hello! Welcome to BSP Believer Skeptic Podcast. The podcast for two idiots debate weird phenomena. I'm Chris. I'm the believer. I'm Cody. I'm the skeptic. We are an LGBTQ paranormal comedy podcast. <laughs> and this is how it works. Every week, we pick a strange but fascinating paranormal topic, such as... La Llorona. Voodoo. Crimes of passion. Empaths. Holiday traditions. Cryptids. Conspiracy theories. Incorruptibles. Ghosts. Telekinesis. Mind control. Deja vu. True crime. Medical miracles. Simulacra. Cursed artifacts. The apocalypse. Stigmata. Oh. <sighs> All right, and after presenting you with a lot of really fun information... I tell you why I believe... And then I debunk the crap out of it. Oh, uh, of course. <laughs> and along the way, you might find some um, really TMI information. Some gay humor. And also some um, sexual innuendos. Yes. So tune in, have fun, and... Bye! And we're back. So, Beth, remind me who we're talking about. Today we're talking about Elifasi Mosami a.k.a. the Axe Killer, a South African serial killer who murdered 15 people. Mm. This killer became known for the superstitious beliefs under which he operated. He notoriously managed to escape from police custody twice. Mm, this guy. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> now we're going to get into some stats. Brrr, come on. Brrr. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Elifasi Masomi, a.k.a. the Axe Killer, a.k.a. the Tokoloshi Killer, was born in 1910 in South Africa. Date month? Who knows? Uh, couldn't find that information anywhere. Uh, he committed 15 murders, as Beth said, from 1953 to 1955 in KwaZulu-Natal, South, Afri South Africa. Uh, his victims came from the Umkomas and Umzikulu valleys of KwaZulu-Natal. His victims were men, women, and children. And we always do our best here at Fruit Loops HQ to try to find out as much as we can about the victims. And we just... Their names ain't out there, y'all. Yeah. Um, but rest in power to whoever those those individuals are. Uh, his M.O. was beating with an axe. And he was executed on February 10th, 1956 in Pretoria Central Prison in Pretoria, Guateng, South Africa. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. The setting is KwaZulu-Natal, a coastal South African province. In the 1950s, known for its beaches, mountains, and savanna populated by big game. The safari destination Hululue Mfalozi Park in the northeast is home to black and white rhinos, lions, and giraffes. Just sounds beautiful. It does. It sounds gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Durban is an Indian-influenced harbor city and a popular surfing spot. Hey. Cultural villages around the town of Eshoe showcase the traditions of the indigenous Zulu people. That is so cool. Add it to my list of places to go places someday. To go. Yeah. It does sound gorgeous. Yeah. 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 And um, uh, this is kind of a tangent, but I've heard a lot of like rich, famous black people who go to South Africa and just uh -huh. feel like rejuvenated. And it's like once once they go back, go to Africa, it's like they're maybe the, the weight or fear of white supremacy just like goes away and they come huh. back to the States like 
renewed, restored wow. black people. I just thought that was a cool idea, which yeah. is, you know, when I get that bag someday, hey, Wendy Williams and family are headed over there. Uh <laughs> So under apartheid, the homeland of KwaZulu, Kwa meaning place of, uh, was created for the Zulu people. Created for. Um, They were already there. uh, But uh, segregation took place throughout South South Africa during the apartheid era. Segregation was defined as the imposed separation of groups, the practice of keeping ethnic, racial, religious, and gender groups separate. So the homeland started around the mid-20th century and ended in the late 20th century, around the mid-90s. And uh, Blacks were given homelands, and that meant that whatever their culture was, they had to go to the given homeland. So as you said, they created these homelands, but really what they did was just shove all the Black people into these areas that they said, this is where you're going to live now. Yeah, it's really fucked up. Um, yeah. I was I was looking for like information about, you know, this case. And I saw some message boards with white South Africans who were like, the black people had it great. In fact, they uh, had even more. I was like, oh, oh God. my God, I'm gonna have to X out of this tab. Yeah, this yeah. is garbage. Uh, uh, the term that was used consistently was white South Africa, as the government aimed to move every black person to his or her respective ethnic homeland in order to have South Africa completely in the hands of the white population. Ugh. Let's talk a little bit about apartheid, which was underway during the course of our story. The Dutch came to South Africa in the 17th century and set up a stop to rest along the spice route. They brought their enslaved people and their ideas of white supremacy, and they took land from the indigenous people. Shocking! Yeah. It was actually really (laughs) fucked up. They tried to, like, um, create these treaties, and then if the African people were like, fuck your treaty, they were like, fine, we're just taking your land. Yoink! (laughs) Uh, I'm laughing, but it's not really funny. It's not. It's so awful. (laughs) Just the way you said it was funny. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) The white people of Dutch descent born in South Africa are called Afrikaner. Mm. In the mid-1700s, the British came along and battled with the Dutch over land in South Africa. The British gained control, but around 1860, the Dutch discovered diamonds and gold inland. Mm. And they brutalized, segregated, and paid almost nothing to the native Black Africans who worked in the mines. Again, shocking. Yeah, it's all (laughs) kinds of fucked up. Blood pressure through the roof again. (laughs) The South Africa Act of 1909 was an act of the British Parliament, which created the Union of South Africa from the British colonies of the Cape of Good Hope, Natal, Orange River Colony, and Transvaal. Black people were not allowed to hold office in South Africa, and white people claimed to keep black people safe by keeping them from power. We're just keeping you safe. Yeah. And that was one of the ways slavery was justified. And yeah. the um, We're just removal, taking care yeah, of you. The removal of um, indigenous Don't worry, people. your pretty yeah. little heads. Yeah. Don't, yeah, don't worry. Old Heidi's <laughs> got you. In fact, no, he do not. Uh, when Then came the 1914 Native Land Act, which shuffled more than 80% of the Native African people into less than 10% of the land. Yikes. Yeah. Um, 80% of the land was distributed to white people. This started the segregation period. Black people began to be called the Bantus. And in the 20s, they lost their right to unionize. In the 30s, they lost their right to vote. You see where this is going little by little. Yeah. And the government hampered their access to education and skilled jobs. Blacks and coloreds, the uh, official South African name for mixed race and Asian people, um, these were classifications put onto them during apartheid, were disenfranchised further and further. By the way, um, when I see the word Bantu, I think of a hairstyle which I and many uh, women of color like to enjoy called Bantu Bantu knots. Right. Um, You talked about that in the other episode we did on uh, the Wemmer Pan Killer. That's right. Yeah. So um, anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that, but just thought I'd throw (laughs) it in. Welcome to Culture Corner. I'm done now. 
(laughs) (laughs) In August of 1946, the African mine workers went on strike to push for better wages and working conditions. In Witwatersrand, the mine workers refused to continue working, and the police were brought in to try to break up the strike, deploying brutal tactics. 75,000 protesters went on strike. At least 1,000 people were injured and dozens were killed. Mm, yeah, and I saw I saw photos oh, uh, online. Yikes. Uh, yeah, uh, not good. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Apartheid comes from an Afrikaans word. Afrikaans is the language spoken by the Afrikaners, meaning apartness or legal separation. And it was instituted in 1948. Uh, It kicked off in 1950 with the Population Registration Act, requiring South African residents to register in accordance with their racial characteristics. You had to register as white, Bantu or black or colored, which was mixed race or Asian. Eventually, Indians, South Asians from the former British India and their descendants, were added as a fourth race. Interracial dating and marriage was illegal. Non-whites needed passbooks to travel anywhere around the country. Uh, the comedian Trevor Noah, his book is called Born a Crime. And right. his mother was um, a black South African and his father was Dutch. Um, and so he had to like be hidden in his um, like house and wasn't always allowed to go outside because if wow. people, if authorities knew that there was this mixed race boy, um, his family could get into a lot of trouble. So wow. awful. Uh, the Bantu Education Act of 1953 was a South African. I'm not going to stop saying it that way. So don't ask. <laughs> uh, South African segregation law, which legalized several aspects of the apartheid system. Its major provision was enforcing racially separated educational facilities. Trash. The curriculum included false teachings of the history of the Bantu people, how they lacked intelligence and were meant to be servants of the white Africans. Oh, good grief. Jeez. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, how long did y'all think this was going to go on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Seriously. (laughs) The apartheid government was extremely right-wing and totalitarian. In the 1950s and 60s, at the same time as the U.S. civil rights movement was picking up steam, non-white people were angry and fought the power. There were also white Afrikaners who were against apartheid. 
Shout out to them. Yeah. Um, police brutality was rampant in South Africa. Nelson Mandela emerged along with the Pan-African Congress and the African National Congress, which were peaceful protest groups against apartheid. On March 21st, 1960, Robert Sabukwe, a leader in the Pan-African Congress, organized the town's first anti-apartheid peaceful, underlined peaceful, non-violent protest. An estimated 7,000 Africans gathered in front of the Sharpville police station to protest against the restrictive pass laws. The police shot at the crowd and killed 69 people and wounded hundreds. Mm. After the Sharpville massacre, the government banned protests and public gatherings of the Pan-African Congress and the African National Congress. It's... uh, (laughs) It's just like they're trying to squeeze the life and spirit out of these African people. Yeah, they are. But no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> the Pan-African Congress and the African National Congress then went underground. They formed parliamentary wings in response to the violence exercised by the state. And Nelson Mandela was imprisoned for 30 years, beginning in 1963. Under the Bantu Homeland Citizenship Act of 1970, the apartheid government stripped non-white South Africans of their South African citizenship. They were then forced to live only in the Bantu stands, which were black homelands or black territories that the White National Party administration of South Africa set aside for black inhabitants of South Africa and Southwest Africa, now Namibia, as part of its policy of apartheid. Mixed race families were ripped apart and could not live together. It just, it's it's not getting any better yet, folks. No. Uh, the living conditions in the Bantu stands were generally poor. Um, I've heard some accounts say horrific, um, filthy. Many lived in squalor and there were few local employment opportunities. Also, um, I think one source said there was um, a lot of um, illness um, because of the conditions. I don't, I, yeah. I can't remember where I saw that. So I'm, don't fact I would not me. doubt that. Okay. Uh, and the Bantu educational system was designed to train and fit Africans for their role in apartheid society. This role was one of laborer and worker and servant only. KwaZulu Natal, the setting for today's episode, was a Bantustan. On June 16, 1976, in Soweto, a peaceful protest of Black school-age children who refused to be taught Afrikaans, my understanding is that it was being forced on them, uh-huh. led to police brutality and the killing of two children. Mm-hmm. Riots started and up to 3,000 people were injured by police. This brought international focus on apartheid and the incident was condemned by the United Nations Security Council. Yeah. Uh, shout out to journalism, right? And, and yeah. photographers who um, got the word out. Um, so what did the government do about it? Well, they just banned all dissent groups, which included the South African South African Student Association and Steve Biko. Shout out to Denzel Washington, who played him in Cry for Glory, who founded the Black Confidence Movement, coined the slogan Black is Beautiful and taught African economic self-reliance, was arrested by police at a roadblock while driving home. He was detained under the Terrorism Act of 1967, and he was beaten and tortured by the police for weeks. Mm -hmm. He eventually died of a brain hemorrhage, but the government reported that he just died due to a hunger strike. Yo. (laughs) News of Biko's death spread quickly across the world and became symbolic of the abuses of the apartheid system. It's kind of crazy when you watch that Denzel Washington movie. The they at the end they um, roll the credits or not credits, but the list of names of people who were mysteriously killed um, in police custody um, after this terrorism act of 1967. And all the causes of death are super suspicious, unknown. Hmm. Fell down a flight of five stairs. Fell down a flight of seven stairs. Uh, hunger strike. Um, I don't know, uh, accidental hanging, like just really bullshit excuses. Um, Eventually, Western nations started pulling their embassies from South Africa, South Africa, imposing sanctions on South Africa. U.S. Congress passed the Anti-Apartheid Act, which banned doing business and trade in South Africa. Ronnie Riggs vetoed it. 
I'm mm. not surprised, but his veto yeah. was overridden by Congress. Good. Yeah. He's such a dick. I know. Oh, my God. I just don't understand why <sighs> people love him so. But you know who, who loves him? People who do not look like me or yeah. are broke asses like me either. <laughs> yeah. The rand, which is South African currency, fell in value and the South African economy fell. Entities decided to divest from South Africa. The whole world was against South Africa. However, all of the pressure that mounted against South Africa didn't matter to them. They were like, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Until right. in 1989, President F.W. de Klerk repealed the apartheid laws and released Nelson Mandela. When they have their first democratic election in 1994, Mandela won. Uh, during Mandela's inauguration speech, he spoke in Afrikaans and he signed the new South African post-apartheid constitution near the site of the 1960 massacre. And I believe he spoke in Afrikaans in order to unite the people. Yeah. Or yeah. Try to unite the people. Yeah. yeah. Good move. Um, yeah. Yeah. Remember all those songs that came out in the 90s, like about Free Mandela? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. The. <laughs> like, what do I do now? What do I do now? Sorry. Ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, TRC, was a court-like restorative justice body assembled in South Africa after the end of apartheid. Witnesses who are identified as victims of gross human rights violations were invited to give statements about their experiences, and some were selected for public hearings. Perpetrators of violence could also give testimony and request amnesty from both civil and criminal prosecution. Uh, yeah, uh... <laughs> I just have to say um, the things that these perpetrators admitted to, because some of these hearings were on TV and mm. Trevor Noah described how he saw some of the, one of the police officers testify that he would train his dogs to kill black Africans. Oh my God. And he would like get prisoners onto his property and just let his dogs loose on these Africans and just let their dog, let his dogs kill and eat them. Jesus uh, Christ. And then um, some of the officers uh, involved in Steve Biko's killing um, at first, Steve Biko's family was like, nah, we don't want them to testify because we don't even want to give them a possibility to try to get amnesty. But right. the government was like, we don't care what you think. So we're going to have them on trial anyway. And they all got, uh, I believe, off the hook or amnesty oh, or whatever God. you want to call it. But yeah. they confessed to the horrible things that they did to him. Um, anyway, uh, despite some flaws, it is generally, although not universally, thought to have been successful. That's the TRC. It was not without criticism. Some said the TRC failed to achieve true reconciliation between black and white communities, and many were disappointed that justice wasn't really served because the perpetrators, again, could ask for amnesty. Desmond Tutu said that South Africa was a rainbow nation. Although apartheid ended in 1994, many would argue that apartheid and its evil twin sister, white supremacy, were never really dismantled. Yeah, pretty... Um Pretty shitty. <laughs> yeah. So now we're going to get into Masomi's early life. Uh, I'll tell you, since the story took place in the mid-1950s and in another country, we don't have a whole lot of information about Elifasi Masomi. We do know that he was a Zulu tribesman born in 1910 in South Africa. Masomi was raised by his mother and his father. And according to one source, he was heavily influenced by his father. And when he was young, he received the, quote, unquote, calling to become a sangoma. A sangoma is a shaman or medicine man, and they diagnose, prescribe, and often perform rituals to heal a person physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. They are also highly respected among the Zulu people. 
In Zulu tradition, God is not really involved in human affairs, but delegates many administrative functions to the ancestors, or amadlozi, who are actively and constantly involved in the world of the living. So ancestors are frequently suspected of being responsible for making people sick as punishment for not abiding by the ethical standards of the community and to remind them of their duty to live a moral life. I just love the aspect of ancestors like doing stuff. (laughs) <laughs> well, up in your business like yeah. what are you doing girl yeah look hey, hey girl Beyonce has a line and sisters on the wall at the ghost chit chat and I just like picture them like doing their bidding like you know talking and stuff I think it's cool anyway when ill one is considered to be in a state of spiritual pollution and imbalance which must be set right which can be done by a sangoma once the sangoma establishes the exact cause of the illness certain rituals will then be conducted to appease the ancestors and restore health. And of course, the behavior that angered the ancestors is then not supposed to be engaged in again. Mm, I, I see you down there and all your your sinny sin sin and fuckery masturbating on zoom Ooh, ooh mr tubin put that thing away uh in addition to the ancestors witches and sorcerers also have the ability to harm others they may house evil spirits use medicines take on animal or other forms or even manifest evil beings witchcraft is taken seriously and and dreaded. People often take precautionary measures to circumvent evil attempts at harming them. They may engage in rituals whose express purpose is to appeal to the ancestors for protection against witchcraft. They may also choose to wear protective devices, such as amulets. Mm. When someone becomes a victim of witchcraft, specific rituals relying heavily on the use of medicinal plants known for their spiritual cleansing powers will be conducted by sangomas to neutralize the malevolent forces. The expected result is the return of harmony, peace, and health in the life of the person affected. The Zulu people also believe in the Tokoloshe, a dwarf-like hairy creature. The lore of the Tokoloshe varies depending on the region, but most are consistent in describing them as mischievous and evil spirits. Yeah, um, but I saw pictures of it. Well, let me describe it. So some describe the creature as tiny and hairy with a thick, sharp, bony ridge from its forehead to the back of its head. Other Zulu sources have described Tokoloshe as a bear-like being, similar in the appearance of the Sasquatch creatures of America and Asia. It is usually invisible, but can materialize at any time. Yeah, creepy. (laughs) Zimbabwe's Tokoloshe is large, covered in fur with long talons and a bony spine reaching all the way down its back from the top of its skull. Mm. It also has glowing red eyes, emits a foul stench and speaks in a rasping voice. Some people believe that the Tokoloshe was created from the dead bodies of shamans. Ooh, happy Halloween, y'all. Uh, <laughs> in, in any case, the Tokoloshe is an evil-spirited, half-human, half-animal being. It is also sometimes referred to as a spirit parasite, and it is very mischievous and naughty. In U.S. articles, it is sometimes referred to as a gremlin, uh, not as cute as Gizmo, though. Probably in an English translation using something similar in European tradition. In other articles, is referred to as a fairy. Interesting. Fear of them is such that many people will not sleep on the floor, and they will actually raise their beds higher by placing bricks underneath the legs. Theoretically, this enables them to see if a tokoloshe is hiding underneath the bed, or maybe keep the tokoloshe from reaching the bed. Some people will not even mention the name tokoloshe for fear of summoning one. Oh, shit. (laughs) Look under your chair. I know. (laughs) Wait a minute. Uh, (laughs) um, 
Tokoloshe are known for their sexual appetite and ability to abduct human children. So most of its victims are women and children. It has been known to rape women, and it sometimes attacks, abducts, or in other ways does harm to children. It also terrorizes children by scratching them as they sleep, leaving long parallel scratches on a child's skin, which can become infected. The Tokoloshe can also cause illness and even death. In some stories, the tokoloshe feeds on the energy of a person, similar to a succubus, leaving them weak and sickly. And if the tokoloshe feeds too often on a single person, it can result in the victim's death. Wow. This is, I'm like thinking of, what's the worst way to terrorize your children and <laughs> tell them about the tokoloshe and you're going to have a, a kid sleeping in your bed for another year. They're going to be putting bricks yeah. under their Yeah. <laughs> the um, their yeah, pads. this is this is intense. Um one story is that when it needs to feed, the tokoloshe will approach a village woman in human form. It will greet her in a friendly manner, maybe offering to help her with something in return for sexual favors. If she says no, the creature reverts to its original form and leaps on her before she even has time to react. Then it proceeds to rape her and feed on her life force. There is a legend that if you look into the eyes of the Tokoloshe, you will immediately die. And no man can refuse his wishes. Murder, robbery, and rape can be excused if the perpetrator can convince the community that the Tokoloshe made him do it. Murders Mm. committed in this way are referred to as Tokoloshe killing. So this this happens. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Because they have a name for it. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Uh, In 2005, uh, two-year-old Masisoli Sotenjwa was stabbed 38 times by a man named Monwabisi Nkatu, who claimed he believed the toddler was Tokoloshi. Nkatu was sentenced to only seven years in prison for culpable homicide. Because he was able to convince them that he thought that the baby was a tokoloshe. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Okay. There's a story in Zimbabwean folklore that tells of a beautiful girl who used to bathe in a river every day. A tokoloshe living in the water fell in love with her, and one day while she was bathing, he, quote, proposed love to her. She was horrified and rushed home to her human boyfriend, who promptly made his own proposal and gave her nine bracelets as a betrothal gift. She wore them the next day when she went to bathe in the river. And when the Tokoloshi saw the bracelets, he grew so angry, he seized her, cut off her arm, and threw it in the river. Allegedly, in the early 1940s, a prospector. Is that a colonizer? What is that? Uh, Somebody looking for um, uh, minerals and stuff. Oh. Oh, dear, true crime comes through every time. You and your big words and stuff. Uh, All your degrees over there. Anyway, allegedly in the early 1940s, a prospector named Captain Valentine found the remains of a human arm and nine bangles buried in the sand on the riverbank and gave it to Harare Museum in 1953. However, we could not verify this. We tried. Yeah. And a farm in Namibia is supposedly haunted by a chained tokoloshe, believed to be abandoned by its owners. It's said to roam around the farm at midnight. Yikes. Yeah, that's that's, uh, terrorizing Santa Maria. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. 
introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. So now we're going to get into the timeline. So Masomi's victims all came from the Umkomas and Umzimkulu valleys of KwaZulu-Natal. And his murders resulted in a reign of terror in African villages from 1953 to 1955. As we mentioned, Elifasi Masami was a Songoma, but he wasn't getting enough business. According to Masomi, he visited another Songoma to get some good luck charms to help with his practice. He paid the other doctor refer two types of medicines that were supposed to help, but they didn't work. So he decided to return them and demand his money back. Now, we're not really sure about the particulars, and this is all according to Masomi. The other Sangoma then conjured the Tokoloshi up, maybe as revenge for demanding his money back. In any case, the Sangoma allegedly told Masomi that he had to accompany the Tokoloshi as he collected the blood of 15 or 16 people. Sources vary. At first, Misomi refused, but the Tokoloshi forced him to comply. And remember, you can't refuse a Tokoloshi. Right. So in August of 1953, he began his killing spree in KwaZulu-Natal that lasted 18 months. Allegedly, his first victim's death was ritualistic. He held her captive, and then he raped and murdered her in the presence of his mistress. The articles all say mistress, but at least one person speculated that this means his girlfriend. Mm. In any case, he then collected the victim's blood in a jar for the tokoloshe. But the mistress or girlfriend, who was probably horrified, went straight to the police who arrested Misomi. However, he managed to escape shortly afterwards, crediting his escape to the Tokoloshi. Although one article said that the elders in his community let him go after exercising the Tokoloshi. According to Misomi, the Tokoloshi accompanied him everywhere and told him what to do. Some articles said that the Tokoloshi sat on his shoulder. Claiming to have been driven by the Tokoloshi, Misomi performed elaborate sadomasochistic rituals before his killings, although uh, none of the articles are specific about what these rituals were. And he would also preserve blood from his victims, many of whom were children. In order to lure his victims, he posed as a doctor, or one article said he also used a con story of promised employment. Some sources said that he also stalked some of them. In any case, he would lead them or follow them into remote areas and then hack them to death. Again, hack 
them to death with an axe. Terrifying. Very much so. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, Now we're going to get into the investigation and arrest. Hit it, Beth. Masomi's killing ground was, as we said, the Amkomas and Amzimkulu areas in the backlands of KwaZulu-Natal. And again, according to Misomi, as both he and the Tokoloshi walked through these areas, they ate and slept together. And he, one by one, killed the natives of the area, going for a certain number of victims, 15 or 16, depending on the source. And this is all happening in the Bantustan, right? Um, yes. After the mutilation and murder of five children, he was arrested, but managed to escape again, which he also credited to the Tokoloshi, like he did with his earlier escape. Some articles suggested that human body parts served as main ingredients in some Sangoma treatments, and it's suspected that Masomi sold various body parts for financial gain. But it's my suspicion that this is just lore. Maybe, although I've seen on a 60 Minutes or 2020 or Dateline, probably 60 Minutes, about a piece about um, the plight of albino people in Africa and how. Oh, yeah, I read about that. Yeah, they're they're um, basically under attack and people will um, kill them and uh, sell their body parts or use it um, for. Um, rituals or treatments, for magic for yeah, stuff, yeah, magic or medicinal purposes. Um, and so maybe it's lore, but could, could be true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just assumed it was some racist stuff. That <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, we talk about that a lot on the show. How um, there's not a lot of cultural competence when it comes to right. reporting on um any people any people who are not white um and so western culture yes exactly so their reporting might be inadequate inaccurate or just plain wrong so yeah thanks for saying it might just be lore (laughs) uh in his his 15th and final murder occurred in january of 1955 and according to some sources masomi was looking for the 16th victim when he was arrested again this time he was arrested for petty theft but items found on him were discovered to have belonged to his victims and he was soon connected to the murders and identified as the axe killer Masomi admitted to killing 15 people and attempting to kill two others. He then assisted the police in finding some of the victims' remains, including a missing skull. The guards at Masomi's cell claimed that while he slept, he made space for someone else in his bed, who he said was a friend. However, they saw no one. Okay, my jaw just <laughs> hit the floor. <laughs> um, so now we're going to get into the trial. Masomi pleaded innocent. At his trial in 1955, he said that the killings were not his fault. It ain't my fault. And he was just a conduit of the Tokoloshi. He said it was the Tokoloshi who murdered, raped, and mutilated the victims. But two psychologists who evaluated him found that he was highly intelligent and he gained sexual pleasure from pain. In other words, he was a sexual sadist. Mm. And on September 28, 1955, Masomi was found guilty of 15 murders and sentenced to death by hanging at Pretoria Central Prison. He was 45 years old. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well... He's dead. Uh, But uh, (laughs) Masomi's reference to the Tokoloshi and his numerous escapes caused a high level of fear among some of the Zulu community. So the judge permitted nine Zulu chiefs and elders to attend the hanging in order to appease their tribes' fears and confirm that the Tokoloshi did not save Masomi's life. And on February 10th, 1956, at the Pretoria Central Prison, Masomi was hanged with no intervention by a supernatural force. Chief Manzo Luandla said that he was satisfied that the Tokoloshi did not save Masomi and that he had not turned into a Tokoloshi as some people had predicted. However, one Zulu chief still believed that Masomi could return as a Tokoloshi. Mm. 
In post-Second World War Johannesburg, a number of American-style criminal gangs formed. One was the Masomi Gang of Alexander Township. The name Masomi is derived from the word Amasomi, which is the Zulu name for the birds referred to as the Red Wing Starling. But this gang was not named after a starling. It was named after Elifasi Masomi, and the name was chosen in order to strike fear in people's hearts. Well, mission accomplished. Uh, <laughs> so now we are going to get into our takeaways, what we think made Masomi snap. So uh, I do not think that he snapped. Uh, I think he truly believed that he was quote unquote anointed and protected by the Tokoloshi. Um, I mean, he did escape from prison two times and has a lot of bodies in his wake. 15 uh, with what seemed like little standing in his way. Um, There was a lot going on in South Africa at the time. And the conspiracy theorist in me wonders if the authorities were, quote unquote, open to letting him escape to allow him to eliminate more Bantu or Zulu lives. Mm. I've heard um, like in Chicago that the police are like, just just let them kill each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is super fucked up. Yeah, um, But anyway, so that's what I thought of. Um, from what I understand researching this case is that the South African government heavily censored information leaving the country and information circling the country. In the documentary, did you see Finding Sugar Man? I did not. Oh, my God. It's so good. And also the music is incredible. Um, But anyway, I have actually never even heard of it. Excuse me? Well, let me tell you something about it really brief. So it's a documentary about finding Sugar Man. Basically, in South Africa, um, people got wind of this really like Bob Dylan-esque type of artist with beautiful music and lyrics. I say he's better than Dylan. Don't at me. Anyway, uh, his name is Rodriguez and nobody knew anything about him. They just had the album cover and the government censored some of the music. So people were like underground trading these records. Um, And anyway, uh, it's a great documentary. Anyway, the guy is a a, a Mexican guy from Detroit um, who... Um, He made the music in the 60s. It got really popular in South Africa, but he was like a nobody in Detroit working like labor jobs. And then people find out he's still alive and are like, come to South Africa. And he's like doing these huge ass concerts. Doesn't expect any of them. I mean, he he gets paid a little bit, but he gives it all to his family. That's so cool. It is (laughs) such a good story. Anyway, there's a dude in this documentary um, and he is a white South African and he didn't he said he had no idea how bad apartheid was. And the I think I was under the impression from this doc that the world outside of South Africa didn't know either how bad. Yeah. It was. So if black people were dying in high numbers in these Bantu stands, did the police care? I don't know. Um, And Beth told me once that there were a lot of serial killers in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And knowing what I know now about the full assault that white apartheid government inflicted upon um, non-white people, black people in South Africa, I feel like I can understand how that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I found this story really interesting because to me, it seems to be all about control. Mm. There's apartheid, which is all about white people controlling black and brown people. Yeah. And the Tokoloshe seems like a way of controlling women and children. The victims are all women and children, and it excuses the behavior of men. (gasps) And uh, the Tokoloshe is probably used by parents and men to scare women and children into behaving the way that they want them to. Yo, Beth, (laughs) hang on one second. I got something for (laughs) you. <laughs> and I don't I don't know if Masomi believed the Tokoloshi was helping him or not. Um, there's just not enough information. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's possible that he had these urges um to kill or sadomasochistic urges. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And he he blamed those urges to himself mm-hmm. on the Tokoloshi. Like the devil made me do it, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it it's a good excuse for bad behavior, like, oh, you know, the Tokoloshi, like I couldn't help it. it. He made me do it. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> or like or like when um people are like, I just blacked out. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. You know? 
Okay, buddy. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. All right. Nice take, Beth. Hot takes. You heard it here, folks, from Beth. Now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So, If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. That's right. Uh, so here's what I got. Corona, white supremacy and murder. Oh, my. <laughs> along, <laughs> along with all the other shit we have to worry about in 2020. Scams, too. Uh, so this is kind of related to the case. It sounded to me like Masomi's victims were scammed or conned into going along with him when they met their mm-hmm. um, their fate. They seemed like vulnerable um, people in either need of songome or work. So here are a few tips to avoid a con, a, con, a scam, uh, getting had, uh, because if they can convince you that they are legit, they can take your money or even your life. Yeah. Um, con artists can be hard to spot. Beth could probably spot them, but I can't. Uh, <laughs> so here are a few. That's just because I don't trust anybody. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> You're going to make all my dreams come true. All I have to do is give you my. How much? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Whew, the struggle is real out here. Uh, so con artists look the part and dress for success. So look behind the surface and do some serious investigating into a person's credentials before agreeing to buy whatever they're selling. Um, a product, a c- experience, a service, um, help, none of it. Uh, websites, business cards, badges, places of business, costumes, all those things can be faked. So check references and cross-reference the shit out of stuff as if pretend you're Beth, because that's what she would do. <laughs> Um, beware of pushy individuals who push poorly understood or little known products or if they themselves are, are not properly credentialed or experienced. Vet, investigate and repeat, girl. If it feels like you are being pressured or pushed to do something, you probably are. So don't. Uh, <laughs> if someone makes you feel greedy or fearful or insecure and promises huge returns with little to no risk, y'all hold up. Wait a minute. Tell them to get to step in. Um, beware of risky free guarantees. If something is too good to be true, it usually is. And the devil is in the details and scammers and con artists usually don't have any, nor do they have any answers to important questions like, uh, tell me about this. Where did you learn about it? What are your, what's your experience? What are your credentials? Those kinds of things. Um, and don't be afraid to sleep on it, right? Um, liking a person or feeling like, like you could have a beer with them. <laughs> Doesn't make them <laughs> legit. Uh, so don't make any moves until you verify, investigate, and repeat. So that's what I got. Good tips. I like it. Thank you. Uh, now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show uh, where we shout out any true crime goodies um, or any content by or about any other or marginalized groups. Halloween. Um, there is a great podcast called 13 Days of Halloween. Ever heard of it? No. Um, so episode one is out now and uh, it's like, an audio drama um, really creepy and really scary it's voiced by keegan michael key of key and peel he's a great nice. actor right so you can imagine yeah. how delicious his voice is telling yeah that story. sounds and exciting I was, I was afraid to go outside and take out the trash after i listened to episode <laughs> one uh and then i also wanted to shout out vampires versus the bronx it's on netflix and it's pg-13 so you can watch it with your kids um and it's uh it takes place in the bronx uh 
and it's vampires versus people in the Bronx. And uh, it's all these people of color and they're just protecting their neighborhood from these creepy ass evil vampire gentrifiers. Uh, that sounds fun. It's really fun for Halloween. Yeah. So enjoy. Cool. What do you got? So the new Unsolved Mystery season two is live. Ooh. Yeah. And they've got uh, all new stories for you. Stories I've never heard of. Uh, stories involving people of color. A couple of international stories. Nice. One about ghosts. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and also on Netflix is The Haunting of Bly Manor, which also has a lot of BIPOC characters. So Yes. Um, yeah loving it have you watched the whole thing yet me and old whitey are two episodes in very pleased so far did you finish it no i'm on episode three so i haven't finished it either so far it's pretty good yeah it hasn't scared the crap out of me yet but i I, looking forward it looks like there's gonna be some scary episodes ahead yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) and fruities i wanted to ask you guys to shout out some of your halloween favorites movies TV shows, whatever you can think of. Let's get our scare on. Get your scare on. Get your scare on. Get your your scare on. Quiet. Shut your mouth. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's it for today. Where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. All of that is true. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something she had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered they are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.